Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I'm examining the 1993 adaptation of King's final Castle Rock story, Needful Things. The movie, starring Ed Harris, Bonnie Bedelia, and Max von Sydow, currently holds a 6.2 rating out of 10 on IMDb, and a 26% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's not a well-received adaptation, despite a strong cast that also includes J.T. Walsh's Buster Danforth Keaton and Amanda Plummer as Nettie. Now, I remember seeing this movie in the theaters when it came out because I was an avid Stephen King fan at that point, and this was the first Stephen King movie that was coming out after I had read the book, a book that I had loved, so this will always hold a special place in my heart for that. Because the movie and my experience of reading the book came so close together, so much of the movie's imagery has seeped into my understanding of the book itself. For instance, Leland Gaunt. Even just recently when I reread the novel, I couldn't help but picture Max von Sydow in this role. And Ed Harris is in many ways how I picture Alan Pangborn. Ray McKinnon, who played Charles Campion in The Stand, alongside Ed Harris, who played General Starkey, is exactly how I pictured Norris Ridgwick as well. And the late J.T. Walsh, despite never reaching the same cartoonish levels of buffoonery when it came to Buster, has seared himself into my brain. So, Needful Things will always be something that I remember fondly. But I've only seen it maybe twice from start to finish, with a handful of times catching bits and pieces on television. I've never seen the director's cut, which I did not watch for this review, and shame on me, maybe I should have, just so I can judge the merit of the intended product, but... To be honest, the allure of a shorter movie was just too good to pass up. As I reread the novel, I was struck at the satirical and comedic tone that ran through its pages, a tone that I didn't remember the movie capturing. So I was very interested in seeing what my rewatching experience would bring. But before I get any further, I'd like to read a listener email. Dave writes, I thoroughly enjoyed your extended discussion of it. There was one point I was hoping you'd address during the film portion of the podcast. Do you hope the new two-part movie will be set in the late 50s and the late 80s? Like the novel, or should it adjust to a late 80s, late 2010 time frame? What would the pros and cons be for each argument? First of all, Dave, thanks for the kind words for the IT review. I think those episodes are a high watermark for me that will be difficult to be topped. In regards to your question... Uh, well, I think that now is as good a time as any to talk about what's going on with the It movie. Over the last few months, a series of news stories broke, revealing a troubled production for New Line Cinema's adaptation for King's 1986 classic. If you've listened to my reviews on both the book and the 1990 TV miniseries starring Tim Curry... I expressed my anticipation over seeing what Kari Fukunaga, the director, would have been able to do with the film. For those of you who don't know, Kari Fukunaga is the director of the first season of True Detective, which I was a huge fan of. So I think he was made to do the It film. So anyway, the first big news story that hit was the reveal of Pennywise the Dancing Clown. In previous episodes, I really put it out there, guys. I was convinced that whoever they were going to get was going to be huge. I had mentioned Brian Cranston, I mentioned Eddie Izzard, and in my dream list, I even included Tom Hanks. I was thinking that big, you know? 
No pun intended. Turns out I should have lowered my standards because the man they cast to fill the shoes of the legendary Tim Curry performance was... Will Porter. Who? Exactly. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on this because it's not fair to insult an actor because he's not another actor that I might have wanted for the role, but I will say that the news hit the internet with a hollow thud. Tim Curry's Pennywise is a staple of the horror genre. And for anyone that was young enough when the movie came out, his performance made a lasting impression among its viewers. Whoever they were going to get was going to have to dispel the image of Curry as Pennywise. So you would need some strength in the acting department there. And again, nothing against Will Poulter, but he's an unknown. Sure, he's been in a couple movies, but the casting doesn't scream confidence. We all wanted someone that we could rally behind and say, oh yeah, that's the guy. That did not happen with Will Poulter. In fact, because the announcement was so much of a disappointment that I couldn't help but get a bad feeling. Because not only was it announced without any fanfare, but it didn't come with any sort of statement from the director himself. And that worried me. In earlier interviews, Fukunaga had stated that he knew who he wanted for Pennywise. If Poulter was that guy, it surely would have come with a statement from Fukunaga. But it didn't. It hit the internet without any studio commentary during the announcement or after the announcement, and that worried me. I had a feeling that something was going on behind the scenes. Then a few weeks later, over Memorial Day weekend, news hit the streets that Fukunaga had left the project over the classic creative differences. And that would make sense. If he's clashing with the studio already, it stands to reason that the studio cast a lead that did not want for his clown. And if that was one of the issues before the movie even began, then what chance did it have at succeeding? The news also broke after the disappointing returns from the Poltergeist remake which featured heavily in its promotional material, the image of a creepy clown. Rumors persisted that New Line Cinema was getting cold feet on the It film because of Poltergeist's weak performance, whose marketing was so wrapped up in clowns. Now, there's nothing to confirm this, mind you. It's just a rumor, and it's too stupid to be true, which makes me think that there's a glimmer of truth in it. So that was the one-two punch for me, guys. You know, some guy... Just some guy, not an established actor, but just some guy being cast as Pennywise and Fukunaga leaving. That was it. I, I, I still would have been on board if Fukunaga had stayed because he would have made it work. Um, but now that he's gone, I could care less what they do with the movie. I have zero faith in this point. And this is only strengthened, and this is where I get really mad, this is only strengthened by the rumor that Fukunaga had wanted, drumroll, Ben Mendelsohn to play Pennywise. Now, if you do not know who Ben Mendelsohn is, then stop listening to this podcast right now. Head on over to Netflix and start watching Bloodline. All right, it is an incredible, incredible show with an incredible cast. In the center is Ben Mendelsohn. I didn't mention him in my dream casting uh, because he hadn't been on my radar. But after I watched Ben Mendelsohn and then I heard that Fukunaga had wanted him as his clown, I just wanted to find everything in my nearby city and just start breaking everything in my sight because he would have made an incredible Pennywise. The goal of the studio should be to cast someone who will make the audience say, Tim who? I'm telling you, Ben Mendelsohn would be that guy. So we had one of the hottest directors working today. 
who was eyeing a charismatic chameleon of a character actor. And instead, we're getting the co-star of Meet the Millers from a studio that's getting cold feet because of clown marketing. So, Dave, what it comes down to is that I'm not excited about the movie anymore, and I have zero faith, like I've said. I know that Fukunaga wanted the flashbacks to take place in the 80s, which would have been perfect. The 50s work in the book because it's personal to King, but it's not relevant to a number of moviegoers. For 30-somethings, childhood did take place in the 80s. And also, with Amblin films being what they were, and these films having been such an iconic part of the 80s cinema, an It movie would play upon the quintessential suburbia that Amblin films represented. It could have been awesome. Now, not so much. Again, just thinking about what could have been. Fukunaga, True Detective was... You know, I mean, True Detective, there, there are definitely criticisms about True Detective that I completely get. But one thing that you can't criticize is the direction and just an eye for the camera and what he was able to pull out of his actors and how to tell a story visually. It was incredible, incredible. Like I've said in previous episodes, there are scenes that just look like an audition tape for It that are just truly unsettling and creepy and how he was able to just create dread and fright with images and sound exactly what you want out of a director working in an audiovisual field that combined with ben mendelson who has to win an award for his role as danny in bloodline he has to at least be nominated i mean the guy deserves to win because he is that type of actor who when he was on screen he was just plugged into this part everything about that scene was electric and you can tell that everyone uh in the show that was acting alongside him. And you had some great, you had Kyle Chandler from Friday Night Lights. You had Sissy Spacek, Carrie herself. You had Sam Shepard. You had um, Linda Cardellini. So you had established actors who are all more than good at what they do acting alongside this, someone that is just firing on all pistons. You can tell that he was just raising the bar of, of acting and he just elevated everyone around him. It was incredible. His performance on this show was incredible. I'm probably going to watch the show again. Simply just to watch him. Just to watch him. Now I can watch the show without wondering what's going to happen next. I can just watch and observe and just soak in the performance that, that, that he is giving. And he's giving it his all. And it's fantastic. And there are scenes where he is so charismatic and so charming and so just fun to, to just listen to and you kind of get sucked into that charm which is exactly what I've said that you need out of a Pennywise someone that can fool you and there are times when he just gets creepy and oily and just you get scared you get scared from him and he's not in the room with you but you feel like he is so I he would make for a perfect Pennywise and I'm just picturing Ben Mendelsohn just caked with white face which would be creepy in of itself it's just it's one of those things where I just get mad at studios. It's just too bad. It's it's a great what if and what could have been. And it's really too bad. You know, maybe maybe New Line Cinema will now pass on it. Maybe it will wind up again in the hands of Kerry Fukunaga. And maybe Ben Mendelsohn will have time in his schedule, which I'm sure will start to fill up because of the buzz that he's getting from Bloodline. And there's a rumor that he is going to be the star of Star Wars, Star Wars Anthology's Rogue One. 
which would be huge for his career. So after that, he could be pretty his his schedule could be pretty filled up, but he will always be the best Pennywise that never made it to the screen for me. So every guys, just you know, uh, thanks for thanks for writing in, um, and Dave, I mean, feel free to, to write in again. And anybody else, if you have not written in, please feel free to do so at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And if you have not done so already, feel free to head on over to. Uh, iTunes, where you can write a review and subscribe. A review and a subscription will go a long way in getting the podcast out there. So it's going to plant that little bug in your ear. All right, guys. And now what I'm going to do, I'm going to get back into my review of Needful Things, the 1993 adaptation. So right away, you got to love the fact that Castle Rock Productions logo flashes across the last Castle Rock story. The camera pans over Castle Rock, the town now taking place on the coast of Maine, perhaps to match the, the iconic image of the production company that Rob Reiner had founded. The music by Patrick Doyle is clearly inspired by the omen. It's devilish, impish at the same time. In the book, Gaunt had hired Ace Merrill to pick up his car in Boston, but here we see Gaunt drive it himself. Now, while we don't see Gaunt, we soon meet Alan Pangborn, played expertly by Ed Harris. It's a fun performance. And even as soon as he shows up, he's Alan, but with a little bit more personality, which surprised me. Not because I'm surprised that Ed Harris has personality, because that guy is one of the most underrated actors working today, but because I didn't remember Alan being so... chipper? I don't know, that's not the word. But I mean, when he enters the diner... Because Polly now works at a diner and not you so-and-so. He is excitable. He's excited to see Polly. He's personable, friendly, funny, charming. He gets along with the customers. It's a way to show us his role in the town. And we meet Brian Rusk, who enters Needful Things. And the director wisely follows Brian as he roams the store, allowing us to get a sense of the geography of the location that will play such a large part in the movie. Gaunt's introduction is not memorable at all. He appears in the distance of another room and hobbles towards Brian, spitting out dialogue that had been given to the unseen narrator in the book with the line, You've been here before. I never forget a face. While you can argue that he's categorizing Brian as just another item in his eternal collection, the line kind of falls flat. He continues to fulfill the role of the narrator, giving us information on the townspeople, specifically Wilma Jerzyk and her husband Pete. Gaunt asks Brian what he'd like, and Brian asks for Mickey Mantle. What's fun here is the banter between the two, as Gaunt seems to know his stuff. Gaunt then delivers a Mickey Mantle card to Brian that, when first touched, sends electric waves through Brian's hand and simulates the sensation of being in the past with a film reel style reenactment of an old baseball game. We're about 10 minutes into the movie, and a part of me wants to say that it's too soon, but it's not. It's about right, I guess. You know, I mean, we're getting into the movie, so why wait? The problem is the, the effect doesn't work for me. I mean, the special effects don't work, and the power that the card can give the recipient doesn't work. It's just, I don't know, maybe a little too matter-of-fact. I feel as though the director didn't really build the moment up. And again, maybe that's my fault for not watching the extended edition, the director's cut. Maybe, you know, he did build it up a little bit more, and I'm missing out on what he had intended. But what I don't understand, and maybe again, maybe again, it's all about editing 
what the director's cut looks like as opposed to the one that I watched. I don't understand why the scene of Brian's interaction, how it keeps intercutting with Alan's proposal to Polly. I mean, what's the point? I guess two... I, we have two different sets of characters that are making a pledge to each other, I guess? Anyway, after the transaction is over in Needful Things, the clearly evil Leland Gaunt, whose fingernails are now long and sharp, writes Brian's name in a ledger and folds those fingers together while he ponders his dark future in Castle Rock. We meet Norris Ridgwick and Buster Keaton, played by the late, great J.T. Walsh. But both actors perfectly capture their characters' tics and traits. Just as in the book, Buster assaults Norris in the bathroom about the ticket, spills into the hallway where J.T. Walsh gets to have a ball playing up each of Buster's most loathsome traits, refusing to let it go, even when Alan attempts a mediation. What the movie includes that was not included in the book is seeing Alan snap, physically shoving each man against the wall and screaming at them. Now here there are pros and cons of this. The con is that King's intent, at least one of them, was to demonstrate the saintly patience of Alan. And how the town sheriff, means, being the town sheriff, means that he has to be as much of a politician, even more so than a lawman. In the book, he led each man through the emotional turbulence to a temporary resolution. Here, however, he jumps right in and is immediately annoyed at the small town BS that's clogging up his day. I think the move lessens Alan to a degree. However, the pro is that because cinema is a visual medium, you physically see Alan come between two conflicting personalities, which is his role throughout the movie. And it's fun. It's fun to see Ed Harris play a comedic type of anger. It's a fun moment, despite, like I said, the, the fact that it lessens Alan. Speaking of conflicts, we get the conflict between Wilma and Nettie with the dog, sadly, in the middle. Gaunt sits Nettie besides a fire to play up the devilish imagery, and when he hands Nettie the figurine, she has a flashback to her abusive husband. I understand that it allows information to be passed along to the viewer, but if this is the effect that it has on Nettie, why should she want to buy it? Brian heads out to the Jersey farm, now a farm in the movie, wasn't a farm in the book, uh, to destroy the sheets. And at about 20 minutes into the movie, Alan enters Needful Things, which is a major departure from the book. Remember, in the book, King kept both men apart from each other until the very end. It showed the lengths that Gaunt would go in order to avoid running into the lawman. Here, however, the director wants to get his two leads together. Their conversation allows Alan to provide his backstory, which is now changed from the book. Here, Castle Rock is his second chance, him having left Pittsburgh after he had assaulted a suspect. Again, I think this lessens Alan's character. We then meet the town priest and, more importantly, the rivalry between his church and the Baptists. Wilma and Nettie's feud continues after the Sheets incident. Funnily enough, when Wilma makes her threat, because she makes her threat on the phone, all I can think of is Ben Kingsley from Iron Man 3. Both characters' choice of words are, you'll never see me coming. And I wonder if Shane Black had pulled that line from Needful Things. We head on over to the Mellow Tiger where we're introduced to Hugh Priest. The Mellow Tiger feels worn in like an actual bar. And one of the reasons is because it's populated by characters we've already met. Buster's there, Pete Jerzyk is there. It's a small touch, but it reinforces the feeling of a small town. 
It's pretty funny, though, because it's not like the bar is populated by the best of the best. We get Buster spitting out his paranoid, delusional fantasies about the pink ticketers to get him, and Pete Jerzyk, who was guilty by association, him being married to Wilma. Hugh, after being kicked out, heads over to Needful Things and is tempted by Gaunt, not with a foxtail, but a varsity jacket. And I understand the reason behind it. The general population has more of an association with a varsity jacket than a foxtail. The two objects invoke the same thing at the end of the day, Hugh's youth and promise, so it really doesn't matter that the object changes just so long as we understand its temptation. Don Davis who will forever be known to me as Major Garland Briggs from Twin Peaks, shows up. Rest in peace, Major. Anyway, Don Davis plays Reverend Willie Rose, who enters Needful Things and has a funny exchange with Leland Gaunt. Willie welcomes Gaunt to the town on behalf of God, and Gaunt nonchalantly replies, Why not? It's followed up with Rose asking Gaunt to place uh, the Say No to the Devil stickers, which Gaunt starts stammering, trying to come up with an excuse. Buster and Alan have a moment that's not in the books, one that embroils Alan more into the plotline than he had in the novel. Remember, in the novel, Alan was a reactive character, constantly chasing the leads as the town fell apart around him. He was trapped in one foot in the past, mourning his wife and child, and with one foot in the future with Polly. Here, he's stripped of the baggage of that death, which allows him to be more in the present, well, I guess in, in the present. In this scene, Buster confines that he had taken $20,000 from the petty cash to pay off his gambling debts. Alan simply knowing this implicates him in a way that never occurred in the books and adds an extra layer of tension to the story. We then cut to Polly, after having been visited by Gaunt, who walks down a flight of stairs that has to be an homage to The Exorcist, a movie which famously starred Leland Gaunt himself, Max von Sydow, as Father Marin. We are then given more scenes of Gaunt spinning his web or watching from the shadows. All right, then we start to have things taken to the next level as the characters begin to pull pranks on each other with a fun and tense scene in which Nettie papers Buster's house and almost keeps getting caught. Buster's reaction isn't as over-the-top as I'd like it to be, but the fright of her almost getting caught is worth it. She returns home to find Raider dead at the hands of Hugh Priest, but thinks it's Wilma, who also returns home and finds her window smashed, thinking it's Nettie, but really Brian. Just as Wilma grabs a cleaver to take care of Nettie, she turns to find Nettie is already in her house, which takes away from the showdown at high noon aspect from the novel, but also establishes more of a motivation for Wilma to want to kill Nettie, because with Nettie being in the house, well, it makes her look that much more guilty of breaking the windows. As Ave Maria plays, the two characters get into a brutal knockdown knife fight. It's great musical choice, by the way. It juxtaposes the beautiful with the grotesque, the best of what we can be with the worst of what we can become. But I also think that there's a warped sense of humor to it as well, as I had kind of been hoping for when I had reread the novel. Like I said, the, the tone is, is greatly satirical. Because here, as the two women are cutting and stabbing each other to death because one of them believes that the other had broken her windows, cuts to Pete outside who cluelessly calls for Wilma to see if she's seen the broken windows. And like I said, meanwhile, Wilma, having clearly seen the windows, is fighting for her life over it. 
That cannot be unintentional. Regardless, the scene ends with a great shot of the two women tumbling over the roof and landing on the ground in a tangled heap of blood and weapons. Later, Alan begins to question the truth behind what had happened at the house, trusting his gut that there's more to it than this seems. The rationale takes him to Brian Rusk just as Brian is about to kill himself. Now, unlike the book, Brian doesn't manage to kill himself because in this adaptation, it's Alan who's there with him and not his little brother because Alan is there to see it happen. It hits him hard. Gaunt starts then doling out weapons, giving Hugh a shotgun, monologuing, monologuing a version of King's origin for Gaunt. I should say now, and I probably should have said earlier, that in the movie, Gaunt clearly is the devil. In the book, Gaunt is a demonic elf troll creature implied to have Lovecraftian roots. He was powerful, he was evil, but he wasn't the Christian devil the way that he is here. Alan goes to Polly, who was under the charm of the Azka. Because of the change to the story, Alan is now hot on the heels of Gaunt rather than being distracted for the majority of the book. He does a background check on Gaunt, proving that he wasn't in Akron, Ohio. The scene causes the rift between these characters that came about in the book from a fake letter that Polly had received. Much like Alan doesn't have the baggage of a dead child, so doesn't Polly. Alan heads over to Needful Things to find it deserted while Leland continues his seduction of Polly. In Needful Things, Alan finds Gaunt's greatest hits, newspaper articles from tragedies throughout history. A little too on the nose. We don't really need it. We get it. He's the devil. While in the store, our sheriff, the detective, fails to notice the box marked explosives, and Polly, inspired by Gaunt, heads to Alan's boat to discover illegal money which she believes is indicative of his involvement with Buster. Speaking of Buster, he shows up and gets into a knockdown fight with Norris, which ends with Buster both being handcuffed to his door and victorious at the same time. Buster drives home and then proceeds to murder his wife after she drops the B word. Without Ace Merrill in the movie, the henchman role falls solely on the shoulders of Buster, who proceeds to plant bombs strategically in order to send the movie to the next level, which occurs when Alan goes to the church to have a conversation, a much too blatant conversation, about the devil. The town falls into chaos, which only concludes when Alan gives a sanctimonious speech to the Castle Rock citizens while Gaunt Leland Gaunt talks trash. It's as if... Fraser C. Henson, the director, understood that Pangborn's magic angle wouldn't work with audiences. I don't agree with that, and would have much rather had that ending than the anticlimactic speech tactic from Alan. Sure, we get some explosions, but we don't get shadow puppets coming to life, or a horse-drawn carriage flying away into the night sky. Now that's what I want to see. Now I want to talk about the tone here. The tone is a lot more fun and whimsical than I had remembered. I had basically remembered it as an ultra-serious recreation of the story. I don't remember the little moments of Alan freaking out on Buster and Norris or Gaunt's one-liners throughout the entire movie. The music also greatly adds to the tone. I mentioned the fact that at times it's reminiscent of the omens, other times it's playful. Classic pieces such as In the Hall of the Mountain King help to reinforce the timelessness of Gaunt's mission, meanwhile juxtaposing it to the very small everyday pranks, you know, with a grand score. 
Ave Maria, a beautiful spiritual song, plays while Gaunt basks in the glow of the fireside, reveling in the death and destruction soon to come. There's a level of absurdity that runs throughout the movie. Like when Polly's in Needful Things and we see Buster cartoonishly bust through the door and plaster himself against it, paranoid of being followed. Or when Reverend Rose and Father Meehan compete in prayers at the crime scene of Wilma and Nettie. Or Buster's present to Norris as his fingers are caught in the mousetrap while the rest of the police station gawk at him about it. Or Buster saying, I killed my wife. Is that wrong? Make no mistake, there's a sense of humor to this movie, a fact that I greatly appreciated. In fact, I think they could have bumped up the level of humor even more. It wouldn't have hurt the movie. That isn't to say that the movie's a comedy, or that it should be a comedy, because there's some true, truly, truly tragic moments in this movie. Raider's death, Wilma and Nettie's death, Brian's shooting. These are heavy moments, and they should be heavy moments, but it doesn't mean that the rest of the story shouldn't have moments filled with a different tone. I'm pleased that Fraser C. Henson chose to incorporate the humor into as many scenes as he did. It shows me that he got it in a way that many other directors might not have. Of course, this can't be all accredited to him. A good chunk of the praise has to go to W.D. Richter, the screenwriter who demonstrated understanding of the shifting tones from King's book. And there should be no surprise because this man wrote the Donald Sutherland starring Invasion of the Body Satchers, which is my go-to version of that story. He also wrote the Frank Langella version of Dracula, which, starring Laurence Olivier and Donald Pleasance, not only has some serious star power, but for a good chunk of horror fans out there, is the definitive version of Dracula. All in all, you know, the movie's fun. But without the sprawling descriptions and backstory by King, the events feel like shorthand versions of the more in-depth story. The weight of the novel is never truly recreated here. Now keep in mind, like I had said, I watched the theatrical release and not the director's cut, which is, I, I want to say, maybe an hour longer. Maybe in that version, it feels a bit fuller. Personally, I think the movie would benefit from the Fargo treatment. By this, I refer to the FX television show that functioned as a remake and a sequel to the Coen Brothers movie. I think that an 8-12 to 12 episode run would do wonders to make us feel like we're living in Castle Rock. We get to see the slow build-up to the eventual explosive ending, which comes out of the blue in this movie. What the movie is lacking is that history of Castle Rock, which can't be captured on screen, so it's, it, that isn't the fault of the screenwriters. So yeah, a Fargo-esque treatment, but more than that, I mean, what if Castle Rock was just a television show, you know, with each season focusing on a different one of Stephen King's stories, eventually leading to the final season which is the story of Needful Things. I think that that would be fun. Tell me that would be great. It would be awesome. So what I'm going to do now is talk about the, the, the book versus the movie. Who wins and why? So let's say just Castle Rock, Western Maine Castle Rock, or Eastern Seacoast Castle Rock. On one hand, we do have a little bit of synergy here where the depiction of Castle Rock is taking place clearly in the, uh, the, the image that is inspired by the production studio. But I, I have to feel that despite the production company, which was created by Rob Reiner, who had directed the, uh, the version of Stand By Me, which takes place in Castle Rock, I, I just have to feel, I have to go with the history of Castle Rock from the book. So I'm going to go with the book on that. Uh, 
Now, how about Polly? In the movie here, we have Bonnie Bedelia, who also played Sue Norton from the original Salem's Lot. And unfortunately, Polly doesn't have much to do. She does have her arthritis, but the, the arthritis... Because we are able to get into the arthritis so much in the book and we see just how hard it is for her to function on the smallest everyday aspects, we're missing something from the movie. Furthermore, Polly who she is versus Polly who she was, meaning the, the life that she lived in San Francisco, all of that is gone. The, the tragedy with her, her, her child is, is gone. And I think that that lessens the character as well. So Bonnie Debilia does she does a good job, but Polly, the strong character, is just missing missing from the movie. So I have to go with the book. Now, what about Alan? Likewise, he doesn't have his tragic backstory, and he doesn't have his shadow puppets. He doesn't have his magic. He doesn't have his almost supernatural grace. He has what he has is a strong actor portraying him. I think that had Ed Harris been given these other characteristics that make Alan so memorable, this would have been a legendary performance. Unfortunately, it's Ed Harris playing a well-written character, but not the character that I wanted a series of books to be written about. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to go with the book on this one as well. And last but not least, we have Max von Sydow. And I'm going to tell you right now, the, the movie is going to win this one because he's so ingrained. Does he mean, does it mean that he's the only person that could play this character? No. And when I reread it, I just recently started thinking about other characters or other actors that could play him. And a couple names kind of popped out. And for whatever reason, John Slattery from Mad Men, who played Roger Sterling, would have been a, a completely different type of Leland Gaunt, that less classic devilish mustache twirling much more sarcastic but keep in mind Leland Gaunt is a charmer he is a charming charming man and so is uh, John Slattery so I think that that would be great Ray Wise can play uh, very warm and welcoming but can turn on a dime Ian McKellen, I think that if we are going with Max von Sydow, if there was going to be a, a remake, I think that Ian McKellen could very easily slip into those shoes. But what about Ted Danson? I don't know why that came up in my head, but I think that Ted Danson could be very, very great in that role as well. So there's a couple others out there that I would like to see take a take a shot at, at, this, uh, at this particular character. But with that said, Max von Sydow is great in this role. You can tell he's clearly having a ball. He's playing it... You know, over the top, but restrained at the same time. He has his one-liners. He's always cracking jokes. He knows exactly how he has to play it. You can tell, you know, just what a great actor he is. But all in all, guys, I mean, I got to go with the book on this one. The, the book is going to win because the book just, it, it has that satirical nature. It's satirizing just the go, 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 gimme, gimme, gimme of the 1980s, the overconsumption, the materialism. And I don't think that that pointed criticism is found within the book or in the movie. The movie is fun and the movie does have a comedic tone, but I think that it is lacking something. And because of what the book is, the fact that it is the last Castle Rock story and it's constantly drawing on the history of Castle Rock, it's missing something. 
something that you just can't capture in the movie. And to me, and again, maybe it's because I just watched the theatrical edition and not the extended edition, but it just never feels like it gets out of second gear. It goes from, you know, second gear to fifth gear, right? And if you were to do that with a car, it's going to cause some problems with your car and you're never going to get the traction. It's never going to feel like it's a smooth transition. And that's what happens here. It goes from pranks being pulled against each other to everything blowing up. And it's just missing something in between. What that is, I don't know. But it's definitely missing something. But it is an enjoyable movie. I did enjoy sitting down watching it. I can't always say the same of Stephen King adaptations. I just re I just uh, recorded the Langoliers ABC TVD miniseries review not uh, not a half an hour ago. So I have these two adaptations firmly in my mind and just thinking about the Langoliers makes me appreciate Needful Things that much more. So anyway, that, that's what I got. Agree with me, disagree with me, let me know by writing into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And guys, make sure that you stick around next week as I jump back into the world of the gunslinger as Stephen King revisits Roland as Cotet with the Dark Tower Book 3, The Wastelands. So we will have the review of The Wastelands as well as a bonus review reviewing the, the Wastelands in a larger context full of spoilers and how The Wasteland fits into the Dark Tower series as a whole. So everyone have a great week and I will see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast. Thank you.